Good morning. Y'all will notice um, that I'm not Pastor Cade. A little bit shorter, but hopefully the word's the same, so we'll be good this morning. Uh, appreciate you all being here on a um, Labor Day weekend and sharing part of your weekend with us and just being here and worshiping the Lord together. It's been an awesome time of worship. Noah, thank you again. I know Cody said thank you, but appreciate him being here and leading us. Uh, it has been a little minute since, uh, since he's been able to be here, but we appreciate that. I don't know if you're not ready uh, to hear the Word of God after that. I don't know what I can do to kind of help us, but we're going to try. So if, you, if you'll indulge me just a second, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for us before we start. Let's go ahead and bow uh, your heads in prayer. Father, thank you so much for, um, God, that you promised to meet with us. God, that you are here. Um, God, you are waiting and ready for us to just bring ourselves to you. So, God, we thank you for the call you've placed on our life that allows us, Lord, to be alive. God, that what you accomplished on the cross is everything. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would just help us to put aside all the stuff that kind of uh, would just distract us from, Lord, being able to just rightly respond to you today. God, we, we have pressures. We have work pressures. we got family pressures. We have financial pressures. God, we, got, we, we just have stuff weighing on us. God, I pray you just let us for this moment, God, just love on you. So, Father, we're so grateful uh, that you love us. God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to, uh, we're going to continue. Uh, Pastor Kate kind of introduced a few weeks ago uh, this study on the Apostles' Creed. And this morning we're going to kind of continue that. Uh, even though he's not here with us, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that. That really we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, you know, his son, our Lord. Uh, but before we jump into it, what I'd like to do is just kind of keep going. We're going we're gonna to do this through the entirety of the series I don't know that it'll continue on after that, but we're going to do it for the, for the series. We're going to stand and recite, if you would, with me, uh, the Apostles' Creed together. So if you go ahead and stand, if you can. If you can't, that's fine. You just sit right where you are. But if you go ahead and just kind of read uh, along uh, with me and read out loud. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Sometimes, uh, when, when, before we kind of jump in, I just want to clarify a little bit of that. Because for some people, um, there's a little hiccup, you know, when we read through that. And, uh, you know... Pastor Cade has, uh, has explained some of this to us, and I just want to make sure that, you know, if you've missed a week or you weren't able to be here or you weren't in right when he was talking about this, you understand what we're saying when we say some of this. One of the things that, you know, we caused, and I'm just going to tell you up front, when I was, uh, when I was a young child, 
my faith background, uh, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic. So that's what we knew. My family was nominal uh, Catholic. We didn't attend a lot, but uh, that's, that was my faith background. That's what I understood. And so I uh, understand now that when we're reading that and we're reciting that out loud and we say, uh, you know, the Catholic Church, that maybe there's a little disconnect about what do we really mean. That really, in the, orig- in the Latin, the way this was written, that word Catholic just means universal. It means all of us, right? It doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. It means all of us. Now, if you were in a Roman Catholic Church today and they recited that, they would have it in a capital C and they would mean, think that it means that. That's not the way it was written originally. So when we, when we recite that, uh, we're really talking about the fact that we acknowledge the fact that in Africa and South America and uh, New York City and even in California, there actually are Christians in California, there are people everywhere all over the world that are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's what that is. So I just want to help us get comfortable recognizing really what the word means, not what we when we don't really understand words, sometimes it's hard to really process some stuff, right? So we did that. But today, in a way of kind of, we're going to continue on. We're going to talk about Jesus. And the way I want to kind of launch into the message today, I want to give you an illustration, if I can, if that's all right. So just kind of indulge me here a little bit. But I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but back in 2008, there was actually a movie that starred Dennis Quaid, uh, Matthew Fox, I forget all who was in it, um, Forrest Whitaker was in it, he was uh, the American tourist, there was Sigourney Weaver was this um, like TV producer kind of person, and, and uh, he, here's the storyline for the whole, the whole movie, uh, what it was is the, the setup was the President of the United States is in Salamanca, Spain. I don't even know if there is really a Salamanca, but in the movie there's Salamanca, Spain, and he is going to address the public, he's going to give a speech in the square of Salamanca, Spain. And uh, we see in the introduction, we see this plain clothes uh, police officer, this cop who's kind of there, undercover, and we see uh, his girlfriend and another man off to the side, and we see a mother and a child, and uh, there's an American tourist, we talked about Forrest Whitaker, he's got his camera and he's videotaping the event because, you know, it's just such an unusual thing to get to be there when the president's speaking. And so he's kind of doing that and there's a secret service agent uh, who just returned uh, from some kind of medical leave. I don't remember what the reason was, but I remember it's medical leave. And listen, all of a sudden, shots ring out and the president falls. He's killed. And uh, minutes later, just a few minutes later, you, you hear this, um, this distant explosion kind of go off. And then an explosion, a bomb goes off in the square. This is all happening in the movie, right? Just within this couple of minutes. And so those minutes, here's, here's the hook for this movie. This is why this movie is so brilliant. Uh, it, it didn't get any of the press, but I mean, it's just really cool the way they told the story. Because what they would do is they would retell those few minutes that I just described from all of these different witnesses' viewpoints. So you would go through the movie to a certain point, and then all of a sudden it would back up, and then you'd see the same thing happen from somebody else's perspective. And then it would back up and it would do it again, and it did it all through this movie. Uh, Listen, the the whole point was that you, you would get to this place in an attempt to get 
to the truth of what really happened. In fact, if you would, just watch this trailer for the beginning of the movie. Listen, if that doesn't get you wound up and ready, right, to run out and go see the movie, I, I don't know what was. Great trailer, right? I mean, just exciting movie. But listen, the, the reason I share that with you is because, listen, that kind of focus, the, the kind of focus that's driven by all of those perspectives, those viewpoints, that kind of focus is not a far cry. It, it really isn't a far cry from what we observe in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 1. We're going to look at really just a few verses today, but we're going to really concentrate on Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And you're saying, James, what do you mean when you say this isn't, you know, this is like the book of Hebrews? Here's what I kind of mean by that. Hebrews is, um, listen, Hebrews is focused, focused on one person. The entire book is focused on one person. In fact, you know, for 13 chapters, 303 verses or so, something like that, the the lens of this book zeroes in on, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And and listen, let me hasten to add then, because the the lens of this text this morning, it, it focuses on Jesus, but just like in the movie we just saw, right? Just like in that little trailer, the the vantage point focuses on on one event from from multiple angles, right? You saw it happening from everybody's perspective, right? Listen, the book of Hebrews focuses on Jesus from multiple angles as well, multiple vantage points. And it's like, you know, this throng of spectators in this crowded square, and they're observing, and they're taking pictures, and, and, you know, they've got all these different angles, and you put them all together, and it makes sense. Listen, the lens of Hebrews 1 especially focuses on Jesus, but it photographs him, right? It it zeroes in as if it were from these five different viewpoints, these five different angles And listen, and because of that, we're going to see five different perspectives, as it were, of Jesus Christ. So if you were to watch the movie, uh, 
you'd notice that not all the witnesses were equal. And it was not all the witnesses had all the information. And not everybody remembered everything 100% accurately. To, to be sure, most of the witnesses, listen, they, they were in focus. Their, their memory was crystal clear. And what they recalled was true, was what transpired. But a few of them, they had memories that, that were, um, they, they were out of focus. They, they were incomplete. They were, uh, they, they were consequently, they were blurred in their recollection. They were blurred in their understanding of what truly transpired. And, and listen, when your recollection uh, is blurred, when your understanding is blurred, it presents a picture of the event that you're recalling in a distorted fashion, doesn't it? Because you don't have all the truth. You think you kind of do, but you don't have it. So it's distorted about what truly happened versus what you think happened. Listen, as I looked at them, I really thought, as I, as I saw that movie, I thought, what a picture, really, what a picture of how the world sees Jesus. You know, what do you mean? Listen, the world's picture of Jesus is most often out of focus, isn't it? I mean, they, have, they know who Jesus is. Uh, they, they know he was somebody, but they don't understand Jesus the way we do as, as believers, right? As somebody who's taken Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life, we have a different perspective. We can sing a song that talks about his death on the cross gives us life. And we can understand what that means. And if you don't have that relationship with him, it, you, you wonder, well, what, how does that happen? I mean, what is, how is that? You know, how does this connect you know, to me? So the world's picture of Jesus is incomplete. You know, they view him as, as a good man, right? He, he was a good guy. He, he, he taught good things. A lot of times, I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with people, but I'll, I've had conversations trying to share Jesus with them. And they'll give me the perspective that Jesus was this, was this really good guy. Uh, you know, he's kind of like a Gandhi or he's, you know, he's kind of like somebody, you know, I don't know who, but he's just like somebody who, who, who taught this really good stuff and he kind of got caught up in this really bad situation and it kind of got out of hand and, and all of a sudden, you know, he just got wrapped up in all this and, and he's just become, if you've ever watched the History Channel, anything about Jesus, I mean, that's the kind of stuff they tell you. They have a distorted view of who Jesus is. Listen, he, he's a spiritual man, but he wasn't anything more. And it brings me to my proposition. If you have your notes there, we're going to actually go through, we're going to fill those notes out today. But my proposition is, listen, when we look at Jesus, right, when we look at him through the lens of the Word of God, we see a clear picture of who he was, creator and sustainer and Lord. We see all of that in just these few little verses. Listen, that theme is the focal point of the text that we're going to deal with today. And listen, we're going to see five, as it were, vantage points of who Jesus is and get maybe a better picture of who he really is. The first one we're going to look at, kind of the first little fill in there, is his creativity. His creativity. And to see that, we're going to look at the first two verses, Hebrews 1. Verses 1 and 2. Follow along as I read these. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he, he what? What's that next word? Made. made. Y'all can speak back. It's okay. Through, he made the universe. Now, I want to stop there and just give you a, a real brief, real brief theology of God, right? If you've been around here any, any amount of time, you know this. If you're new, you may not know this is what we believe, but we're just going to tell you. We believe that, and we teach uh, that God is a triune God. Fancy word for saying uh, there, there's one God manifest in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what we teach. We teach what the Bible says. Now this text, this text that we're dealing with, clearly states that of the Godhead, right? Of that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... This text is telling us that of those three, it was God the Son who created the universe. Jesus is the one who created the universe. Look again at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom, listen, that's Jesus, he made the universe. So God made the universe... But it was God the Son who was actually responsible for doing it. That was his job. So it was Jesus who spoke the universe into existence. He just spoke out of nothing, and all of a sudden, everything you see is. There was nothing before. I want to interject a, a, a crucial note here. Uh, and I guess I'm just going to say this. If, if I ever... Uh, after this time, if y'all still keep me, and I'm allowed to speak again, I'm just going to tell you kind of how I do this. This is just, this is my style. Uh, I will tend to refer to uh, the original language, you know, and I'll, because I'll just say when, you know, the Greek word for that is boom. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to be so impressed that James went to, to seminary and he, you know, actually has a degree in the wall and, you know, isn't he so smart? I couldn't care less about it if anybody thinks I'm smart. What I do want to do, though, is drill down on the words and the nuance that that original language gives us that sometimes we don't get in our English translation. A lot of times, I mean, just as an example of kind of how this works, um, we have a rug right down the middle, and the rug is, let's say it's burgundy, and it has a dark black line running around the entire ring of it. And then it has a gold line on the outside of it. And it has all of these other ornate kind of designs in it. And i got to go through all of that to tell you what that rug looks like. And in Greek, there could be one word that describes the whole thing. In English, we translate that word that describes the whole thing with one word sometimes. And we miss some of that nuance. And it's critical that we understand the nuance. To understand what the text is really telling us. So, for instance, we have this word uh, that I want to go through here. The word made. And through whom he made the universe. That, that word made comes from a Greek word. In the original language that was written is poyao. An, and, and poyao, it's the word we get poem from. Okay, that's the entomology of the word poem. It comes from that root word. And poyao means more than, here, here's why this is so important. It means more than just to make something. We read that and we say, through whom the world was made. And we get an idea that God has the power. Jesus had the responsibility to make this thing. When you make something, um, it means something different than to create something, right? 
The actual word, poyao, means to create. It's much different than just making. In other words, God didn't, Jesus didn't just, just uh, like mass produce Xerox copy the universe. You know, we look out and there's a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars each. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on and on and on forever, right? Jesus didn't just, just make another copy of one he did earlier and then kick it out. And that's kind of where we landed. No, he, he created. Listen, when you make something, if I was to, to go back to my, my, my shop at the house and I cut some wood and I get some nails and a hammer and I start pounding it together and I get a flat piece on top and I make a table. I just make the table, right? Just a plain everyday table. No, nothing fancy. But on the other hand, if I was to go to, um, forgive me for, I just lost the name, of the art, the place I can take art class here. And I sat down with them and I said, I want to uh, do something in clay. I want to I make a, a vase. Well, what do I have to do to do that? Well, I've got to envision that vase. I've got to get my hands into it. I have to actually put my soul and my mind and my heart into creating that thing. That's different than just taking a hammer and nailing a few nails. That's kind of indiscriminate. Listen, Jesus, this text, that little, and through whom he made, no, and through whom he created the universe. Jesus put himself into the creation. He didn't just take a nail and, and tack the thing on and all of a sudden there was. He created, he thought through it, he put his heart, his soul, his mind, so to speak, into it. So that's our first vantage point, his creativity. Second one is his composition. His composition. We're going to take a look at uh, verse 3. First part of that. It says, the sun is the exact radiance of God's glory. And listen, the ex- he's the radiance of God's glory, excuse me, and the exact representation of his being. Now stop there again, because that phrase... Uh, exact representation. We, we got to drill down there to really understand this. When you look at it in, you know, phonetically in the English, it looks almost like the word character, right? It's caractere. And, and caractere, it means exactly what I said. It means exact production. That's the inference there. It, it's, not, uh, it's not a copy of God. It's not a clone. You know how they you know, talk about, you know, in Britain they... they successfully cloned sheep, you know? So you have one sheep, then you have another sheep, and it looks exactly as the, the first one. But they're not the same, right? They're, they're two different beings. That's not the implication of caractere. When it says the exact representation, it's not a copy of God. It's not a clone of God. It means exactly God. The point is, Jesus is an exact representation of God because he is God. The Son of God is God. I I thought about this as I was kind of putting this together. I thought, well, that's that's like in John 14, Jesus is answering Philip. Philip asked him in verse 8, he says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough, right? He just wants, Philip just wants the assurance that Jesus really is who he says he is. He says, just show us the Father and we'll get it. And Jesus, he answers, he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen who? The Father. 
They're one and the same. In fact, listen, I, I know this is hard to comprehend. I, I get that because, I mean, it's hard. Listen, we, we spend years in seminary trying to grasp this. And it, we can't get our heads completely around it. I get that. None of us can fully comprehend the Trinity. I mean, how is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father, how are they all the same? They're all God, but they're three distinct persons. How does that work? I mean, I get it. It's hard. But the fact is, Scripture tells us that Jesus is God. And as this book unfolds, right, the truth becomes more and more and more evident, more and more and more clear. In terms of his composition, who is Jesus? He's fully God. So we, we've seen his creativity. We've seen his comp composition. Our third one is we want to look at his controlling power. His controlling power. Again, verse 3. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now watch this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Listen, I want to zero in. We're going to put our lens on that word sustaining. Because it, it's so cool here. That, that word sustaining is, is a Greek word pharaoh. And, and pharaoh is, is a really graphic word. It's one of those words that I was talking about. That it's just one word, but it describes so much. It's just that one little word. And the, the word means to, it means to support, right? It means to, uh, to maintain things, to, to uphold something. It's a force that upholds. And, and as I was trying to think through, I said, how can, how can we visualize this? What does this really look like? So the best I could kind of come up with, if you can just imagine, if you've ever seen a suspension bridge, right? You have a span, you have a, you know, part of the earth over here, and then you have this giant span, and then you have uh, another part over there, and you span. Span the distance with these cables, right? And what do those cables do? They uphold the bridge. That's the, the idea here. It's, 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 um, it, he's sustaining, he's upholding, he's maintaining the universe. Listen, it, it's used, here's the other thing, it's used in the present tense. So the, the word, the implication isn't just that he did this, is that he's continuing to do this. It's just going on and on and on. His word is maintaining all of the universe. The, the idea is that all things are being held together continuously by the power of the Son of God. He causes the universe to continue to exist. You, you know, the, what that means is, is the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the tides... Um, you, you know, laws of nature, you know, laws of thermodynamics, uh, laws of entropy. I mean, all these things that we know that cannot be violated. They're, they're absolutes in the universe. They're just, they are what they are. They can't be violated. Those things are not being maintained. They're not being upheld. They're not being supported uh, by some luck or mere chance or some evolutionary process. They're being upheld, they're being supported by the very words of God, right? Jesus is holding all that together. They're held in check by a designer, by a creator, who's continuing to be involved in his creation. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's Jesus. You say, well, so what? <laughs> James, you're telling me stuff you know, we don't, you know, I don't want to just give you information and then not have any life application to us. 
I mean, so, okay, so, all right, I can buy into that. Jesus is God, and, and he's creative, and, you, you know, he's, he's got this controlling power to maintain, you know, the universe, but what does that mean to me? I mean, what's the big deal? So he did that. One point in the past, he's making that happen. Okay. Here's the deal for us. I, and I don't know if you ever process it this way. You know, we, we, quote, we, we quote John 3.16, right? I mean, people who aren't even, people who go to church, they've heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, and we kind of roll through it and we say this, you know, gave his only begotten son. Here, here's the deal. Our passage, we've just seen that the God who created everything from nothing, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is God, who made all of this that ever was, all of this that we see, everything is being held together by him, who poured himself into the creation, that same second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is the one who came and hung on a cross to take your place and my place, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was me, and I had the power to do all of that, and I had a bunch of ungrateful people, I probably wouldn't have done that. Just being honest. But Jesus did that for us. What's the big deal, James? The big deal is the God who made everything and sustains it continuously is the very same God that came and made a way that we can sing a song about his time on the cross gives us life. That's a big deal. Fourth point. Your fourth vantage point. His cleansing of sin. Again, look at verse 3. Since the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. Listen, that is, to me, that is the most awesome truth. Christ has provided purification for our sins. Let me just kind of help you see why that's so awesome because we have a dilemma as human beings, we have a dilemma. We're born into this dilemma, right? So if we understand the dilemma, we can understand better the full impact of what Jesus has done. So we have Romans 3.23. Some of you may have heard this. For all have what? Sin and fall short of the glory of God. So that is a, it's an archery kind of term, that, that falling short. Uh, it would be like, uh, like Michael and I, uh, Michael's much bigger than me, right? He's much stronger probably than I am. But we both stand up here. We both have a bow and arrow. And we shoot aiming at a, I don't know, some kind of target on the other side of the square. And so I shoot and mine kind of like goes just outside and maybe reaches the sign. But Michael, because he's stronger than me, he shoots and it gets all the way into the square. In fact, he pegs the statue He's really good. What happened? He went further than me, but we both fell short of the goal. Point is, that's what that's telling us. We, we're all sinners, and as such, we come short. No matter how hard we try, we can't get there on our own. We come short of what God requires of his perfection for us to be able to get into heaven. 
Romans 6.23 says the payment, this gets even worse, the payment for the fact that, that Michael and I come short, that we all come short, the payment for that is death. And you get at the sequence, 3.23 says we're sinners, and, and 6.23 says we have to pay for the fact that we're sinners, and so the way you pay for them is death. I'm thinking, man, that's a bummer. I mean, really, right? I mean, that's just not good news. And by the way, the context here is a spiritual death in hell. So to pay the debt for your sin, you have to go to hell and you have to suffer. Uh, and then when you suffered in hell, you pay the debt and then you, you get heaven. That's kind of the idea. L let me give you an illustration of how this would work. Maybe. I know this probably doesn't happen in LaGrange. So just kind of have to pretend um, this is Atlanta or New York or Miami or some other place, right? Suppose you, you read about a guy who commits murder, and he gets caught after he commits murder, and he goes through the trial, he means arrested, all that kind of stuff. He goes through the trial, uh, he's, he's put on trial, the, the jury reaches a verdict, and they say he's found guilty. So now you have this guy who commits murder who's guilty, right? Go through a couple more weeks, you get to the sentencing phase, uh, the judge, you know, brings him back in. He stands before the judge, and the judge says, uh, the penalty for the murder that you committed is death. So you're going to pay a price for the fact that you committed this sin, right? And, and so he goes through, you know, a couple years go by. He goes through um, all of his appeal process. You know, everything's exhausted. He's gone to the Supreme Court. Nobody answers it. So comes to the day that he's now going to be strapped into an electric chair. And so they, they strap him in, they click the switch, and throws the electricity through his body. A couple seconds later, he's dead. He's gone. Listen, all the time from the time he committed the murder until the time they throw the switch and he actually dies, he has not paid the price for his crime, has he? I mean, he's been in jail, or he's been in prison, or he's been, you know, he's been somewhere, um, but he hasn't paid the penalty for that yet. And it's only when he dies that the penalty's paid. It's, the Bible is saying to us, to pay the debt for your sin, to pay the, pen, the, the penalty for my sin, we have to go to hell, we have to suffer forever, and when you've suffered for all eternity, it never ends. Once you've done that, then and only then have you paid the penalty for your sin debt. That's what Scripture tells us. Th that's our dilemma. So what we needed was someone who could pay the debt for us. Someone who, who could live above sin, right? Outside of sin. And then would willingly take the penalty for sin upon themselves. And then bear the punishment in our place. This, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the debt for us. It's, it's like he, he, he cleaned the slate, if you were, you know? Just imagine, I've got a slate, and he, I'm cleaning the slate. Back to our passage. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided, what? Purification of sins. I want to drill down because this connects to what we were just saying. That, that word purification 
Catharismos is, is the word. And catharismos, um, it, it means to, to wipe something. Take this bench. It means to wipe something completely clean. To purify something, right? That, that, was, that was intrinsically, that was naturally unclean and bad. It's to clean it, to purify that thing. So, so what has God purified for us? The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. Listen, by, by the way, that, that word purification, it's in the aorist tense in the Greek. That means it was a thing that happened at one time for all time. It means Jesus doesn't have to continuously pay the penalty for us. He paid it. His death on the cross and resurrection paid the penalty one time for all sin. Listen, on the cross, Jesus provided purification once and for all for everybody. And once you trust Christ as Lord and Savior, there's nothing more you need to do. There's nothing more you can do. Listen, your, your sins have been cleansed. Your sins have been forgiven. His sacrifice was sufficient. It's the best way I know how to say that. For all of our sin. Listen, for the forgiveness of all our sin, including yours, including mine, past, present, future, doesn't matter. His sacrifice is sufficient. Listen, here's the thing. I've had this conversation like twice in the last week and a half. I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know... You know, why this is all of a sudden becoming a thing. But, but I've had some of you would come to me and say, listen, you know, I'm just having a conversation with somebody. And they're talking about, you know, they really feel like they can lose their salvation. And so, you know, I'm having these discussions trying to help you help people understand that you can't really lose your salvation. Here's why that's true. Here's why I know that's true. Because God's word can't violate itself. It just says that he paid it once and for all, Catharismos. It's once and for all, forever, Right? So if that's true, something else can't be true if it violates that. So here's the thing. If somehow we could say that, that you could lose your salvation after truly becoming a believer, taking Jesus as Lord and Savior, what you're saying is that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. That it only paid for some of your sins, that it didn't pay for all your sin. Because if that were true, then that means Jesus has got to die again for my sin. And then if I can lose it again, then Jesus has got to die again for my sin. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Jesus died once for all. All of it. Listen, look, look with me. If you've you got your Bible with you, look at chapter 10, uh, verse 10. We're going to pop there for just a second. I'm going to read it while you're getting there. It says, and by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. How? Once and for all. You can't get any more explicit than that, right? You're, you're not being made holy. You've already been made holy. You're, you're not being saved. You are saved. You're not being cleansed. You have been cleansed. Once for all. Interject a note, because I know many of you have come to know Christ, and you came out like me. You came out of different faith backgrounds, right? I get that. I mean, I understand and God love you for, for, you know, listening to and responding to the Holy Spirit and coming to that point where you, could, you can make that choice. One of the faith records, the one that I came out of, a Roman Catholicism, will teach something that they call uh, purgatory. And purgatory is the same kind of idea. 
It's really a Roman Catholic doctrine. There's really no basis in the Bible for it at all. And listen, the Bible, the doctrine basically states that if you, when you die, if you're not perfect, if you're not perfect, that you have to go to this place that's not heaven, but it's not really hell, um, but you go to this place that's kind of in between, and you have to stay there, and you have to burn for a certain amount of time. Your soul burns uh, for some reason until you're purged of all that remaining sin. And it's only after uh, you, you've been there for whatever length of time it is, um, you know, that somehow you're, you're cleaned from this purgatory, Right? Listen, what a different picture the Bible paints for us. It, it tells us that, I want to read this, in fact, I want to read this, if you'll indulge me, from the King James, just that one little verse. Because it says it so explicitly. I want you to, I want you really to take this home. The sun is the radiance. Yours may say uh, the brightness of, of his glory, right, in, in the King James. But the sun's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When he had his own self, what's the word? Purged our sins. It means they're gone. Have you ever purged something? Once you purge it, it's out. Your sins have been cleaned away completely. When you call Christ to save you, he purges your sin once and for all. So James, how do you know that's true? I mean, what, what evidence is there that that's absolutely true? I'm going to give you that. This is your last point. Jesus demonstrated something after he purged us of all our sin, after his death on the cross. He did something that absolutely shows us that it's true. Last point, his current position. His current position. Again, we're going to look at verse 3, chapter 1. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That phrase, he, he sat down, man, is crucial. It is such great significance here. It takes us back to the years before, the time before Jesus came, right? Before Jesus was born. Back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. And in that system, God had designed, he, he instituted this, this system to, um, to cover the debt of sin, not to clear the debt of sin, but to cover the debt of sin. Until Christ came, till he sent his son to take away sin once and for all. And the system involved uh, this series of animals, different kinds of animals, and this group of priests uh, that were tasked with, with uh, offering these sacrifices. Listen, but the system had some issues built into it from the beginning. And let me show you what I mean. Sin, if you can just kind of picture this, but especially before you were saved, but you can even imagine what it's like because you, you have this you know, this hiccup that kind of happens when you sin. But sin, when you sin, it puts a barrier up between you and God, right? The priest would come along. You would go to the priest and say, listen, I've sinned. And he would offer a sacrifice and the barrier would go down. And then all of a sudden, you're between God and you have a good relationship with God. And then you leave there and about an hour later, you do something and you sin again. And there's this barrier between you and God. And you can go back to the priest and he'll offer another sacrifice. And the Barrier goes down, and you can go back another hour, and you do that, and you kind of see the problem here, right? The sacrifice never got rid of the sin. It never paid for the sin. It only covered the sin for a temporary time. So the barrier of sin between man and God was up and down, up and down, up and down. 
Because the sacrifices offered by the priest weren't sufficient. They couldn't take away sins completely. For this reason, back to Hebrews 10, looking at verse 1. Here, just listen to me. You don't need to turn there. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices, talking about this system, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, these animal sacrifices couldn't take away the sin once and for all. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? Makes sense, right? If the, if the offering worked, then you wouldn't need to do it again. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. It would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. This, but every time a person sinned, they felt this guilt over their sin. They got a debt. The priest would have to go into the temple and kill an animal, pay the debt for this, the person's sin. You say, James, how long you know, did they have to do this? I mean, how often did they do this? Here's the crazy thing. They did it incessantly. They did it continuously. I mean, it, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, those priests would rotate through the temple and they would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. I mean, nonstop. And, and listen, here's the thing. The work of those priests was never done. It was never finished. They never sat down. In fact, here's, here's the crazy thing. In the temple, we know this, in the temple where those sacrifices took place, there were no seats. Because this, the priest couldn't sit down. There was no time to sit down. Chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, talking about this, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What was needed was one perfect sacrifice that would remove our sin once and for all. That would remove the barrier between God and us once and for all. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross for us. He was the perfect final sacrifice for sin. He was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Verse 12 says, but when this priest, talking about Jesus now, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, which is what we've been talking about. For sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say at the very end? Do you remember that? It is finished. He offered the ultimate final sacrifice. He had paid the debt once and for all for our sin. And when he had finished, he ascended. We just talked about this in the creed. He ascended back to heaven and notice the contrast, right? He sat down. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice which can never take away your sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? He sat down because the debt was paid. It was complete. He didn't need any more sacrifice. It had been paid once for all, for all who trust him as Lord and Savior. The, the barrier of sin that separates uh, you from God is removed once and for all. The debt for sin is canceled once and for all. Now, don't get me wrong. And we're, we're done, right? We're, we're finished here. So. Knowing that that's true, knowing that, that, that your, your debt, your sin debt has been paid. Jesus did it one time. Everything's good. You've accepted him as Lord and Savior. 
you, you, you know, you are a real, true Christ follower. Does not give you license to go live like hell. You're not allowed. That's not what that says. If you're truly a child of God, if, if Jesus has really saved you, if the Holy Spirit truly lives inside of you, you're not going to want to sin. Now, we still do sin, but we don't want to sin. But when you fail, here's the cool thing, God wants you to know your sins are already forgiven. But he does expect us, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Your sins are forgiven, but he expects us to grow in our faith to the point where we're living like we say we believe. Fancy word, sanctification. That's what that means. It means you live out who you say you are. You live out the truth that Christ is in you and you're in Christ and Jesus is in God and we're all wrapped up together and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That should change how we live. And if it hasn't changed for you how you live, then I would call you to really question and examine whether you really have ever asked Jesus into your heart. It's not a license to just do whatever. It ought to generate in us such a sense of awe and worship for all that God has done. There's five vantage points in those couple, three little verses. But who Jesus is, that ought to cause us to want to grow even more. Just amazing who God is. The Son of God is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. God, for the truth of your word. God, thank you for all the nuance that's there. If we just drill down a little bit, God, how much more you have to show us and to teach us. God, such that it will change us. God, it'll cause us to, to want to live for you. God, it'll cause us not to just want more information, but it, God, it'll cause us to actually change the way we live. God, I recognize that there's some people here that don't know you yet. God, they've just never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray right now your Holy Spirit would have liberty. Work in their lives. God, call them to you. God, you sent Jesus to take our place. God, I pray uh, your Spirit right now would help people understand what that means to them. And God, help us all to live like we really say we believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And if you have uh, something uh, that God's dealing with you, if you want to respond in some way, you want somebody to pray with you, um, you just want to share something what God might be doing in your life, you come down. I'll be down here. Cody can be here. Tom will be here. Uh, if it's a lady, you want somebody to pray with you, we'll stop and we'll get a lady to come and pray with you as well. Uh, but you come, so stand now.